I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Hey, good morning, everybody. We're continuing with our topic on Taiva or impulse control. And um, we were talking about this idea that a lot of times we give in to certain things because of social pressure. We mentioned this uh, mantra, decide, don't slide. Because one of the things that human beings are very good at is adaptation. And so even though we may have certain standards that we feel are very important and valuable and they're part of our value system, we don't realize how often we are influenced, of course, by society around us, by what our friends are doing, by what's, you know, what's the, what's, what's in style at this moment of time. And so we have to be aware and uh, stay true to the standards and the values that we hold dear. So we're going to talk today about the idea, again, of Taiva as a pursuit, that we're in some kind of a chase for something. And, you know, we feel that once we get that thing, everything's, you know, we're going to be happy. Everything's going to be the way we want it to. And there's something a little bit illusory, illusory about this pursuit of Taiva and the feeling that it gives us that if I just have this, then I'll be happy. So we're going to start with a quote from uh, Kohelas, the great Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, who we're told was the wisest person in the entire world. And he said in Kohelas, a person who loves money will never be satiated with money. So it doesn't matter whether money is the thing that one is chasing you can, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is that, that uh, you know, is your obsession or that you're chasing. But, you know, Shlomo HaMelech, of course, uses money because money is very often what people spend their lives chasing. We know that, you know, in the Shema prayer, we said that it's interesting that we're told to love God with our life and then with our money. And, you know, one of the rabbis asked, like, wouldn't you put your money before your life? meaning your life is more precious to you, but they also are giving this very deep insight into the human nature, which is for some people, their money is much more precious to them than even life itself. So basically the very thing that I'm into, the very thing that I'm chasing is the very thing that will never satiate me. This is what Kohelis is saying. Shlomo Hamad also says the person A person doesn't leave this world with half his desires fulfilled. And another thing he says is when you have 100, you want 200. So it's like this idea of the human being always in pursuit, always chasing. So these sources imply that the pursuit of pleasure is a constant chase. So what is it about Taiva? What about Taiba makes me always pursue something? 
So some of the women that Dina Schoonmaker teaches in Israel, one of her groups is a group of young mothers who are always exhausted and have a lot of children and a lot of household duties. And she said some of them were giving examples that what they're always chasing is sleep. You know, I never have enough sleep. I got to have more sleep. They're chasing calmness in, in their homes. Okay, maybe tomorrow it's going to be calmer. Maybe tomorrow I'm going to get enough sleep. So what is the pursuit aspect of Taiva? So again, we're talking about Taiva being uh, desire, um, the ability to control our impulses, to ability to control our Taiva. So they're saying there's this certain aspect of Taiva that has this nature of pursuit. So Rabbi Meir Hadash says, we know Hanefesh lo temale, the soul is never filled. So this pursuit that we're on, we have to realize that whatever it is we're chasing, the soul is never filled. And Chazal bring a mashal. It's found in the uh, text of Mesilla Sisharim, the path of the just, of a bat melech, I've, I've brought this down before, who marries a low-level villager. And anything that he brings her will never satisfy her. Right, He tries to bring her all these different material goods from his standard of living, and nothing satisfies her because she's a princess. So the parable is telling us your soul is coming from a very high place. It's the princess in this story. And the nefesh is never satisfied with this worldly things. All the material and physical pleasures of this world never satisfied, satisfies that neshama, that nefesh, that soul within you, because the soul isn't interested in material stuff. The soul is interested, obviously, in spiritual uh, things. So the villager keeps bringing her things and she says, no, 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 not that, not that, not this, not this. So the body says, maybe a little bit more will make me happy. But the soul, the princess is never happy. So an example of this would be, you know, you're really hungry and you need a good source of protein. But instead of eating protein, you eat chips instead. And the idea is, is because you're not giving your body what it needs, which is protein. You just keep eating and eating and eating, but you're not satisfied. So we have a brach every morning where we say that Hashem gives me everything I need. And this is a very important bracha and a very important idea for somebody who never feels satisfied. It doesn't say that he... Um, he gives me everything, but rather he makes for me. Asali, okay, not not shenatanli, even though we usually translate it like that. That Hashem gives me everything I need. It uses the word asali that he created or he made. In other words, whatever I have is tailor made for me. So when we try to fill a need with the wrong things. We just keep chasing that thing more and more without being able to fulfill, to fill up that need. 
So this is a question of, you know, what are the wrong things that we try to fill ourselves up with? The very simple idea that Dina is giving here is, you know, your body needs protein and instead you're eating chips. And of course, your body isn't feeling satisfied. So you're just going to eat more and more chips to try and fill up that hunger, but it's not going to do the trick. So Taiva is often the pursuit of something that by definition is not gratifying, which is why we think we need more. But your soul wants something different. So one of the examples that she gives is a child who's always asking for things. You know, you can have a child in your family who's always asking for things. And it, can't, it can be because it doesn't matter how many things they get, they're never feeling satiated by it. So there's a um, parenting expert in Israel. Her name is Rachel Arbus. And she says that kid who's always asking for stuff, give that kid something without them asking for it. Pre-empt, preempt their asking. And preempt this need, this kid who has these insatiable needs. Because one of the reasons they're never satisfied is because they're always soliciting. They're always asking for stuff. And they don't find it satisfying because they're always the ones, the one asking. And everything they look out around their room that they might have, you know, this very needy child, Everything has this message in it. Oh, that toy over there on the shelf. Oh, I remember I took a tantrum to get that toy, right? This toy over there. Oh, I remember I manipulated my mother into buying it for me. I did a great little, you know, song and dance show and I got her to get this for me, right? So everything has this message. And, you know, this I mooched off of somebody. This I, you know, whined and whined and whined until I got it. And this is what I got for my birthday. But everything is always, you know, got something attached to it. So the truth is, as is, is, is the this psychologist says, it's very counterintuitive to want to buy this kid anything. Um, but it actually, when you do this, she says, it fills the place of many requests. Because it's more satisfying when somebody's given something without asking. And she says, this is true about friends and relatives who are always asking for time and attention. When you preempt them calling you or bothering you, and you call them for no reason, hi, how are you? I was thinking about you. This gives them a certain satisfaction that quiets them, so to speak, that they're not going to get by always feeling like, I have to ask, I have to be the first, I have to, you know, be a nudge, I have to. So it's almost like a great chesed to sort of preempt that and it fills those kind of people up in a completely different way. So she says that this idea goes back to object permanence, right? One of the uh, stages of, of development. For example, if a ball rolls under a couch, a baby thinks that it doesn't exist anymore. So people believe they're only relevant or important to other people when they are with them. Okay? Out of sight, out of mind type of thing. 
And she says that that's why, you know, there are people who are constantly texting today. Because as soon as you leave, I feel like I'm not important to you. And we live in a, a, a time period now of excessive communication. And, and she says that this excessive communication comes from a belief that is like, I don't really live on in your mind. But object permanence means you believe it's still there even when it disappears. In other words, you don't have to respond to every text. You don't have to be available at three in the morning. I remember at the very beginning of cell phones, I don't know if I got the story right, but I remember being shocked. You know, it's like, you no, know, do you remember when technology first came in? I still remember the first time somebody called me on their cell phone who had arrived at my house and was letting me know she was outside. And I thought it was so weird. Like, why are you calling me? Like, why don't you come to the door or, or like knock on the door, or ring the doorbell? Like, that is so weird that you're on a phone and I'm on a phone and you're two minutes, two inches away from me, right? So I remember that. And then I remember another story where I was so shocked at this person's chutzpah. But I think it was like I had a shaitel appointment and I don't know. I was supposed to be there at a certain time, which I was intending to be at. And this Shaitelmacher was calling. I guess she either wanted to change my appointment or something like that. And I guess I didn't have my phone with me or whatever. And she just like was so angry at me that I wasn't available. And I was messing up her whole schedule. And I thought, wait a second, this is weird. This is not normal. Why do I have to be available all the time? You know, but this is what we're living with. And it's a whole new reality that, you know, we don't even realize how much it's changed our lives. But, you know, especially with young people who really depend on their whole self-esteem and, you know, what she's saying here that I don't mean anything unless I'm not in your life constantly almost like this object permanence that you know like a baby like if it's not in the room it doesn't exist or it's not on my phone it doesn't exist so she's saying that this can be um part of this uh this excessiveness in um chasing something because it gives us a certain sense of self, but it's a bit illusory. It's a lot illusory. Actually, she says in the area of intimacy, it's interesting that when one spouse has an excessive need and they're always the one soliciting, then it's, there's a, a psychological principle that their need is never fulfilled because they want to be on the other end. They want to be solicited, solicited so to speak, by the other partner. And because they're always the one, you know, making that move, there's something psychologically, because again, when someone is pursuing something excessively, it's because it is not fulfilling or satisfying. It's not what our soul really wants. So another way to look at this is that Taiva employs the power of dimion, which is imagination, Right. All of the advertising, everything in terms of getting us to crave and chase something, they're working with the imagination, the illusory uh, part of the brain that convinces itself, again, 
that if I have this, if I eat that food, if I buy that sweater, if I go on this vacation, then it's going to be amazing. And Taiva tells you, you know, this thing is going to be amazing. And it only works on something that you haven't yet attained. Once it's yours, it's no longer as great as it's cracked up to be, right? So Dimion, the power of imagination, always says, no, it's the next thing. It's the next thing. It's the next vacation, right? It's the next article of clothing. It's the next shopping spree. That's what's going to fill me up. That's the power of imagination in the human mind. So why do we keep falling into this trap, asks Rabbi Dessler, that we always think it's the next thing. Mmm, this chocolate is so good, but the next piece will be better, right? Oh, the sleep is so good. Another five minutes, though, and then I'm going to be refreshed. It doesn't make any sense. If seven hours didn't do it for you last night, then how is five minutes more going to make a difference? The chances it will make a difference is what the imagination tells you. It tells you you'll feel so great with those extra five minutes. Basically, what the imagination tells you is what you don't have yet is amazing. And it keeps you chasing. And then once you get it, it creates the next chase. And of course, we know this is what advertising employs. Advertising works on this part of our brain to keep, your, the, to keep the imagination keeping you on the pursuit. So the question that each one of us has to ask ourselves is what does my imagination look like for me, right? Is it, you know, the feeling of exhaustion and if I just had six more minutes, I'd be okay? Or is it, you know, the taiva of eating more than we need? You know, dessert comes up and I'm still hungry and, and I need to eat more. And the truth is, is, sometimes you really are tired and you really are hungry, but we know that's not always the case. And filling yourself up is not what you really need. So there's some scientific research that's done on this. Um, I don't know what you would call it. It's called leptin. Leptin is the feeling of satiation. So when a person is lacking this feeling of satiation and i guess this could be in terms of food it says it's because their leptin is blocked and believe it or not it says that sugar and flour block leptin and when a person goes off sugar and flour white flour i guess which is the usually the first things that you know nutritionists will tell a person to eliminate from their diet to the best that they can, they don't have the craving for things because they've cleaned their receptors. Okay. Now this is spiritually relevant because this is like the seichel, the brain, the mind, and it's the imagination. Sorry, that, sorry. When we use our mind, we, we use it so that the imagination which, which creates craving is dampened, okay? So it's our mind 
right? Remember that analogy of the elephant who's going for the child and the child's able to distract the elephant. So, and we said that, that the parable is, parable is saying that the seichel, the mind, the intellect of the human being is what's able for us to be able to um, override our taiba, right? Whether it's through distraction, but it says that basically when we use our seichel, we can dampen, we can, we can be in control of this imagination part of us, which is what really is creating the craving. So much, so much depends on why you're doing what you're doing. Sleep and food, of course, can be used for avodas Hashem, or they can work against your avodas Hashem. After all, we have a mitzvah to sleep on Shabbos, right? We're supposed to take care of our bodies. We eat food, we drink wine, we eat meat, we celebrate. There's a place for this in Judaism. And Revolba says this is why taiva is so hard, is hard. To say that no food, you know, I'm going to abstain from food or to say no sleep or I'm not going to speak at all because I don't want to speak Lashon Hara is easy. But it's so much more difficult to be in the world and to be, you know, again, enjoying the pleasures, but to use it properly. So the question that we always have to ask ourselves with any activity is, is this activity giving me more tranquility? Is it helping me? come closer to Hashem, or is it taking me away from it? Is there laws of diminishing returns, right? Or something is no longer serving you that, you know, maybe originally you were getting something out of it, but you see the more you run after it, the more you crave it, the less satisfaction, the less ability to enjoy it. And it's actually taking you away from where you want to be going. Okay, so Shlomo HaMelech says also in Mishle, he says, Ohev kesev lo yizba kesev. We said that before, that the one who loves money will always be in pursuit of it. He won't be satisfied by it. Now we can replace kesev, of course, with whatever we're driven to desire. You know, Dina Skumbaker says, Ohev fashion lo yizba fashion right? That if you're very consumed by the latest fashions, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to be constantly running after whatever is not in anymore. You're back again to buy more. I think I told you about that woman who couldn't sleep at night because she was wearing the wrong nail color because while she was sleeping, the color had changed overnight and she came rushing in the next morning to the nail place going, help! I'm out of fashion. I'm out of nail fashion, right? So people can be, of course, this is an extreme, extreme example. But, you know, tablescaping, she talks about, you know, my dishes are outdated. I need new dishes. My dishes are no longer food fads, you know. Um, I feel poor because I don't have the latest, whatever it is, the poor little rich girl. Um, she tells a personal story that somebody had given her a beautiful tablecloth and it was a little bit small for her table. So she brought it to, to the store to get another one so it would fit her table. And the sales lady behind the counter was absolutely shocked. She said, we don't have this. This is not this year's season. It's not even last year's season. How could you even think you could get another one? So... So Dina was thinking like, you know, what happened? Did it become extinct? I mean, 
where is it? So the idea is that, you know, if one is chasing certain things, trends always come and go. And um, she says that there's a new terminology where people use these words, I've got to switch it up, which basically means, you know, I need to upgrade, I need to change it, I need to do something. And she said, this is the culture now that, you know, everything has to be changed and up to the latest. And it's happening more and more quickly than it used to happen. This is what Dina Schoonmaker says than when we were younger. So, you know, like even cell phones, she says, you know, there's a chase to keep up with the cell phones. They already have six models ahead of the ones that we have now. They've already created six more models, but they come out slowly to make a person feel like they need to buy each one as it comes out. And then there's the idea of cancel culture. So cancel culture is affecting relationships of kids in dorms. She's talking about in Israel, she works in the school Michlala. And she was saying that they asked her to come and speak to two different seminaries on the subject of cancel culture, because it's a reality today in the seminaries with the girls. She said in olden times, whatever olden times means, maybe when we were kids, I don't know if that's true then either, but she said, you had to work on your relationship with your roommate that you didn't like. Now she says the new culture is I just cancel you out. I don't say hi to you. I ignore you. I pretend you don't exist. Anyway. So she says, if you love peace and quiet, if you love a clean house, if you love a certain standard of food, those are the things that, you know, if you don't have them, you're going to be bent out of shape by it. And then the next thing she talks about, people who love news, but are never satiated by the news. They pursue news obsessively. So, you know, I know I, I've, I've mentioned this before in terms of the pandemic that we've been living through, that a lot of people who are naturally anxious people and naturally nervous people, they chase the news, even though the news just makes things worse for them, Right. They always have to hear how many people, you know, died from COVID today. What's going on everywhere in the world? What's the new strain? I mean, when I get into conversations with people like this that are so up on the news, you know, I'm just amazed by how it never, it never lets up for them. They're still involved in this sugya, if you like, obsessively, and yet it's not making them calmer. It's not giving them any tranquility. It's just feeding this need to know. So again, it's this idea of Taiba being short-sighted, short-lived, and anti-sechel, against the brain, right? We read and hear sensationalistic news, and you have to ask yourself, is this good for my psyche? Does it lift me up? Is this a waste of time? I was teaching a course on jealousy to a bunch of younger women probably in their 20s. And one of them, you know, was saying that for the last three months, she went off all of social media, Facebook, and all of these different things that everybody's on. 
And she said, because she realized it just consumes her with jealousy. It makes it very difficult to be happy with your life and your blessings when you're constantly reading about other people's lives and looking at other people's pictures. And the younger you are, you know, uh, one girl was saying that she finds she's become more jealous, you know, in her 20s, 30s. And this was a married girl looking around at what everybody else has than she remembers ever feeling or being when she was younger. And I said, that's interesting because in Pirkei Avos, it says that, right, jealousy, taiva, and honor remove a person from this world, meaning it makes it hard to enjoy life. And I told her that I once read that taiva desires correspond to our younger years when we're basically consumed with, you know, desires. And jealousy, actually, the rabbis teach, corresponds to the middle of life where people are busy acquiring, people are busy settling down, you know, having more stable lives. But that's also the same time when you're looking around at your neighbors and saying, why do they have a bigger house than me? Why does she drive a fancier car than me? Why are her kids better behaved than mine, right? And her kids got into Harvard and mine can't even get into York, you know, whatever it is, right? And we're all very much consumed by that at this stage of life. And anything that you know, we feed ourselves that is giving us feelings of anxiety. And pleasures, again, the Ramchal teaches pleasures in this world are supposed to give us tranquility. They're supposed to give us that calm so that we can serve Hashem, so that we can develop our spiritual selves. And if they're not doing that, right, if we're getting diminishing returns, if these things make us more anxious, more upset, more of I need more and more and more because I'm not being filled by it, then we have to ask ourselves, why am I chasing this? It's interesting because, you know, people who are anxious and who shouldn't read the news or people who are jealous and shouldn't be looking at what everybody else is doing, it's almost a tie that means they can't stop themselves, right? It's like, you know, the more anxious I get from the news, the more I want to read it. Because there's some kind of, you know, even though it's an unpleasant feeling, there's a certain addictive quality to it. And, you know, Dina Schoonmaker was just analyzing the whole news industry, how they have a whole psychology of keeping people hooked on wanting to hear the news. They build layers of news to keep people listening. So a rabbi Daniel Feldman wrote a book called False Facts and True Rumors. And the book is basically about the laws of Lashon Hara, but even more, it's about the psychology of Lashon Hara. What makes people want to speak? And he talks about the idea that once upon a time, before the world of technology, when it was harder to print things, the written word had to go through a much longer process until it was actually put out to the public. It doesn't mean that everything they wrote was correct in the olden days, but the quality of the info was much, much greater. She, said, he, she says, information used to be vertical. It came from people higher than me, 
just like in terms of the Jewish tradition, information came from those who knew more than me. And then it was handed down, just like we have, you know, Moshe received the Torah from Sinai, and then he handed it down to Yoshua and the elders, and there was a whole pecking order. She says, today, there's no hierarchy in the world of the printed word. Now it's horizontal. Anyone can write. Anyone can be a blogger. Anyone can say whatever it is they want. And not just that, everything has to be instant. You can get updated every few minutes. You know, you hear news today and they'll tell you, well, tomorrow they're going to have a meeting about this. Listen to the news tomorrow to find out about the meeting that they're having on this subject. They're always trying to lead you to the next day of news so that you'll be hooked. And she says, most of our info is not even information. It's just filling your head with a lot of junk. So the question is, what do you do? Do you not listen to the news at all? How do you find the balance? So, of course, we should know what's going on in the world. And, you know, there's no myla, there's no uh, greatness to having your head in the sand. But a person has to find the middle path. And she says this is the same is true with dieting. For some people, dieting works, you know, when they go cold turkey. I'm not... I'm just, you know, I got to start tomorrow and that's it. I'm getting rid of everything that is working against me. No sugar, no fat, no white flour. Whereas she said for other people, that kind of dieting doesn't work for them because they have to say, no, I'm going to give myself a treat every day. So it depends too on your personality. Some of us have more addictive personalities and some of us are able to handle moderation. I know my Bubby, who lived to be 101, God bless her, um, used to, one of her favorite things to always say was, everything in moderation, right? Everything in moderation, to be translated into English, everything in moderation. And that was her mantra. And that's what she would say over and over again. Now, of course, your moderation and my moderation might be a little bit different. But the idea is, is that we all know that there's certain areas where we are addictive or we have addictive tendencies. And so the Rambam teaches that if you know that you have a certain extreme in a certain area, one of the ways that the Rambam says to fix it is to go to the opposite extreme. So, you know, again, you could take this in terms of dieting. If you really feel like you're totally out of control, so maybe the rumbum would say, okay, you have to just get rid of everything and go to the opposite extreme, and then you'll come back into the middle. I remember I had a friend in New York who every time before she started a diet, her secret was she would eat an entire chocolate cake. <laughs> or whatever it was she she told me she eat the whole cake you know and get be sick and be totally satiated with sugar and flour and all that good stuff and then she said and then she was ready to be on a diet then she could do it she could do it for like I don't know how long but she could do it and anyway this worked for her but again this idea that you know if you really want to change a character trait too they say you have to go, the Rambam says, you have to go to the opposite extreme. And he says it takes about 30 days for this to really take hold, this new behavior. 
And then he says, you can come back to the middle. You can find that place of balance, that place of moderation. So again, Dina Schoonmaker, you know, who dieting is one of her favorite topics, says that for some people that will work and for other people, they'll feel deprived, right? So when you're on a diet and you feel deprived, that's like the worst thing because then it just, it can't last for very long. So, you know, there are some people who will say, at the end of the day, I give myself a piece of chocolate. At the end of the day, I give myself one little treat and it's like a reward, but it's also like, I'm not depriving myself. I'm getting what I need. I'm getting what I want. I'm getting that pleasure from this, right? And what happens anyway is that, you know, I mean, it's incredible how your taste buds literally change, right? All of a sudden things are too sweet when you've, you know, taken away some of that sugar, you put less into the, into the recipe, right? Or you start putting a little bit less in whatever it is that you usually take with, with, with a sweetener. I mean, if you like diet sweeteners, fine. I happen to not like any artificial anything. So, you know, if I just give myself a little bit less maple syrup or a little bit less. So it's amazing how your taste buds readjust. Doesn't matter at what age. And they actually become sharpened again. And the things that you might have eaten before are like, oh, this is way too sweet right? Like milk chocolate and par of chocolate, right? How come when old people get old, I remember my bubby always had par of chocolate in the, in the fridge. It was like, okay, I'll have some, but it was like, you know, because milk chocolate is so much sweeter. When you're a kid, you know, it's not sweet enough, but sometimes as you get older, it, you can't take that kind of sweetness. So it's interesting just the fact that we can change and find that place of moderation so another point to this that's very interesting is brought down by this dr david lieberman he says one of his kids was having health issues and he went to a nutritionist with the child and the nutritionist said well tell me what does your child eat so it's interesting because i can relate to this so one of the things that uh, he mentioned that his child has every morning for breakfast is he drinks a cup of orange juice. So, you know, in older times, this was considered a healthy way to start the day. Now, my mother, who was very, very uh, well, very uh, much, um, she was always on a diet, she would say, even though she never had a weight problem. But she would say she's always on a diet because she was always watching what she ate. And one of her big uh, admonitions when she would see you drinking a drink of orange juice or she saw orange juice in your fridge, she would say, don't drink orange juice, eat an orange. Okay, so this is exactly what this nutritionist said to this uh, mother with this child. When she said he has a cup of orange juice every morning, he said, oh, that's horrible. Do you know that orange juice has three or four oranges in it? Now, let me ask you something. Do you usually eat three or four oranges when you're sitting down, you know, to have a snack? So he, he was explaining that your body was not created to drink this much in one sitting. The same way that you wouldn't eat four oranges. And if you did, your body would have to take the time and effort to process it. 
And there's no time and effort involved in processing orange juice that contains four oranges in it. And of course, the main thing is that it, it has no fiber in it. It's just sugar, my mother would say. It was just sugar, right? Because any, once anything's converted into juice, you're missing out on all of the fiber and the effort and the work that your body has to do to process it. So, um, so she uses this analogy in terms of the news again, to go back to the news. She says, you know, and I, I've thought about this many times, you know, when people say the world is worse than it's ever been, or there's more tragedies than there's ever been, you know, well, people are dying more than they've ever died. I mean, we all know that's not true, right? We know that in olden times, if you had 10 kids and three of them survived, that was like a, a good, that was, you you know, you, you, you were a very lucky person, right? Or if you lived, you know, into your 50s or 60s, wow, that was incredible. So we know on the one hand that we're living in mo the most incredible times health-wise and in terms of all of that. And yet, you know, when people lived in villages, how did they get their info transmitted? transmitted? It took a lot of time until the information came to their village and the whole processing of it, right? And even if it was disturbing information, there was always a long space between the next piece of information. She gives an example of somebody who dies from being struck by lightning. So in the village of 3,000 people, this could happen once every 600 years. But now in our global village, we can hear of 25 people a day getting struck by lightning. So if a person is naturally anxious and fearful, the fact that the news is constant and we hear about it from all over the world, every, and it's usually always bad news, right? It's usually bad news and negative news and tragic news and horrible news. And we know what's going on everywhere. So the prevalence and the frequency of hearing news, right? Everyone's getting divorced. Everyone's sick. Everyone's dying. Um, there's always terrible things happening. And she says, and then we wonder why people are so dysregulated. You know, of course it affects people's emotional well-being. And she says, especially for young people, how are they supposed to navigate a world where it seems like only terrible things are happening? How are our children and grandchildren able to process all of this? And we know that it's tragedies and shocking events that always make the news, not the sweet, nice news. And the result is anxiety and dysregulation and the sensitive soul can't handle all of this. And what happens, she says, is people develop this psychological um, the psychological, what's the word? Anyway, it's called disassociation, where you don't want to feel the pain, right? There's too much pain to digest. There's too much pain to process. So you basically try to disassociate your feelings from what's happening because you can't handle it, right? You know, she gives a simple example. You see a kid fall down and you walk by because you can't handle other people's pain. 
It's called compassion fatigue. It's actually a psychological term, right? You have compassion fatigue, so you stop helping people because it's become too much. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, but, you know, there's certain religious news sites that if you would go on them, I mean, it's not like we're a rest, that it's any different in the religious world where you think that they would block out a lot of these tragic and terrible news that we hear about in the world at large. In some ways, it's even more intense because if you click on Yeshiva World News or any of these things, the first things that pop up are, you know, they don't have any promiscuity on them and they don't have any scandals on them, no immorality. But the truth is, is there's a lot of violence and tragedy, right? All of the ads that pop up are all asking for money for these horrible cases. You know, help save this orphan, help save that widow. Mother of 10 children loses her husband. You know, husband, these are the kind of things that pop up. And of course, what Dina Schoonmaker says is she's had to like stop her children from even going on the religious sites because of this bombardment of tragic news. And even though it's asking us to give tzedakah, it like, again, it creates a coldness, a disassociation, a compassion fatigue if we're being bombarded by it. And it can't help but make people anxious affect our mood and we're supposed to be besimcha so you know how can we be happy how can we um be balanced and centered if we're being bombarded constantly by negative negative images um interestingly revolba says that babies are born with compassion and as we grow older the world desensitizes us and then you have to teach yourself. You have to buy back, he says, compassion. You have to teach yourself to be compassionate again. So you're born naturally that way. But then as you live your life, it's very easy to become hardened. And so a person has to be buying it back. And this is in line with Daniel Goleman's research on compassion on babies. He did a study where he noticed that when newborns cry, sorry, newborns cry when other babies are crying. It's funny, I had an experience. I had a, a baby in Israel. I think it was my first child was born in Israel. And Israel is kind of a rough place to have a baby because I say it's like being in the army. You, know? <laughs> you have to be tough. You have to be tough in Israel for everything. So, um, Anyway, the room that I had was a room that was full of other mothers. I was not in a private room. I was with like, I don't know how many other women in the same room. And I was laughing and joking that, you know, whenever a, they were with a baby, whenever their baby started crying, you know, my nursing mechanism would fill up out of compassion for that baby, right? But it wasn't my baby. But because we were all in the same room, we were reacting and responding to every baby's cry biologically. So, you know, it was like, get me out of this room. I could feed the whole hospital by the time I get out of this room. You know, this is not good. This is totally dysregulated. But anyway, the point is, is that if we bring this down to what we're talking about now, the idea is that babies have this kind of 
biological set mechanism, but he calls it compassion, where a newborn baby will cry when other babies are crying. Now he says in six months, they can hear another baby cry, but they know how to self-soothe. A few months later, people bring a pacifier to the crying baby. Sorry, hold on. Oh, right. And, um, and even a little bit older than that, a, a, a child can differentiate between a baby who would like you to come to them and pick them up and who would not, who can self-soothe. But she says, then we become desensitized because of the way the wider world uses it. Because being too sensitive works against us. So becoming curious about other people's bad news is a taiva. There's something about human nature that we're attracted by bad news. And why is this? So some people will say it's because then I'm going to feel more grateful. If I hear about other people's bad news, you know, then I'm going to say, wow, I'm so lucky that didn't happen to me. But again, she says, is that really the reason? From media is full of sensationalism. And in her home, they decided they're not going to talk about every single news item because it's like drinking orange juice. Back to the orange juice analogy. The orange juice is too much and we're unable to process it. Well, when it comes to time, the, the, the real message is a person has to ask themselves, is this something that in moderation is good for me? In other words, there's nothing wrong with shopping moderately and getting new stuff. But is it something that has control over me, that I'm chasing, that I'm in this pursuit of, and I'm expecting that somehow it's going to fill me when even though I know that it doesn't, and I know that because I'm always running after it, right? Um, a person has to know, how do I correct this? Can I do this through moderation? Or does this have to be something that is a red flag for me, that has to be completely off limits in order for me to be able to find that proper balance? Okay, another aspect just in the last minute. Actually, you know what? I think I'm going to stop here because it's a new topic and I want to address it next week. Okay, so moderation, ladies, everything in moderation. And that's like we said, for each of us, it's a different place, but we all know which areas of our life we run and we chase and we pursue. And we don't get the satisfaction that we expect. And again, the whole point and purpose of the pleasures in this world are to get, bring us tranquility, to give us a place of calm so that we can focus on the higher goals of life, which are our spiritual excellence, which is what the princess, the soul inside of us, that's the only thing that it gets satiation from 
in this world. You can feed the soul all the material pleasures, but it says it doesn't fill me. It doesn't do anything for me. I need pleasures of the soul. The pleasures are for the body to keep it happy. But again, where is the place of diminishing returns where the body is making you run ragged? It's it's the boss. It's leading you down all of these roads of pursuit. And the soul is benefiting nothing from it, right? And the body is only having diminishing returns. It's not feeling any more tranquil or calm. You know, Abraham Maslow and his, his um, hierarchy of needs understood this idea. He said that, you know, he had this triangle. And he said there's basic things that people need right? They need their material well-being, right? They need to know that their earth is, is um, taken care of, their material well-being. And his hierarchy basically shows that once people have the material taken care of, the highest part of the triangle is that now they can do self-actualization. And it's a very, he was a Jewish guy, obviously, but this is a very Jewish idea, that once we have our basic needs taken care of, the purpose of life is self-actualization. And of course, as Jews, that's through the Torah. That's the only way that we can be self-actualized because our nefesh, our neshama, is a Jewish neshama. It's qualitatively different. Not better, but different than a non-Jew's neshama, Right? We accepted 613 mitzvot upon ourselves, and that has to do with the nature of our neshama as individuals and as a people. So we cannot be satiated. The pleasures of this world, Judaism says, enjoy them, but they're there to help you self-actualize. If they become the pursuit, any of it, whether it's material or like we said, you know, listening to the news, pursuing fashions, whatever it is, um, if they're not in moderation and a means to an end, then we know that we have, we need to bring ourselves back to the middle and become the boss and not the slave to these things that we're pursuing. Okay, any questions, comments? Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.